House Speaker Nancy Pelosi's planned visit to Taiwan in August is causing diplomatic tension between the U.S. and Communist China, with the Chinese government suggesting a military response should she go ahead with the visit. What exactly is meant by military response, and should the U.S. allow China's threats to dictate its foreign policy? Joining me to discuss this and much more, president of the Population Research Institute, author of the new book, The Politically Incorrect Guide to Pandemics, Stephen Mosher. Stephen, thanks for being here. Before we get to the book, uh, I have to start with this Pelosi visit to Taiwan. The Guardian has confirmed her trip in August, despite pushback from our own state and defense departments. On Tuesday, a spokesman for China's Ministry of Defense said regarding Pelosi's visit to Taiwan, if Pelosi visits Taiwan, it would seriously violate the one China principle and seriously harm China's sovereignty and territorial integrity and seriously damage the political foundation of the China-U.S. relationship. Beijing urges the U.S. to take practical actions to uphold its commitment to avoid supporting Taiwan's independence and must not arrange for Pelosi to visit the Taiwan region. If the U.S. insists on taking its own course, the Chinese military will never sit idly by and it will definitely take strong actions to thwart any external forces interference. Stephen, your thoughts on China's response here to this trip? Well, I, I think that the Chinese Communist Party's uh, actions have seriously harmed U.S. relations for a long, long time. Uh, the espionage, the theft of intellectual property, the currency manipulation. Uh, and, and more recently, of course, we have the, uh, the claim that China owns the entire South China Sea. Uh, we right. have aggressive actions towards Japanese ships, including ramming a Japanese naval vessel uh, a couple of years ago. Uh, this is gray zone w warfare. Um, and what that means is that they're pushing the envelope there, trying to see how far they can get us to move back, to give way, to concede control over Taiwan to them without going kinetic. And the thing about a bully is whether it's a schoolyard bully or an international bully like uh, like China, uh, you don't kowtow to the bully because the next time they will simply mm -hmm. demand that you bow lower and concede more. I think uh, since uh, President Trump was elected in 2016, there have been a whole series of senior government officials who have gone to Taiwan. That practice should continue. In fact, I would argue mm -hmm. that we need to extend diplomatic recognition to Taiwan now as an independent country mm -hmm. and not do it in isolation. Do it in conjunction with Japan and Australia and our NATO allies and present a united quad, yeah. front against present a united front against this new uh, Chinese aggression. Because remember what's happening in Tibet right now, what's happening in Xinjiang right now to the Uyghurs, what's happening in Hong Kong right now to the, that once great free city. Uh, this will never end. Uh, it won't end with Taiwan. It will continue after that as China mm. spreads its uh, errors around the world. Stephen, even Biden is suggesting that Pelosi not go to Taiwan. Uh, now, she would be the highest-ranking U.S. official since Newt Gingrich back in the 90s to visit the island nation. Uh, Pelosi doesn't seem to be backing down, however. Listen. I think that it's important for us to show support uh, for Taiwan. I also think that we have none of us has ever said we're for independence when it comes to Taiwan. That's up to Taiwan to decide. Your reaction, Steve? 
Well, I, I would be happy if uh, Nancy Pelosi were to go to Taiwan uh, in conjunction with several other senior uh, U.S. officials. When, when you talk about harming relations, no nation uh, of the two has harmed relations more than China in releasing a pandemic upon the world. And I have to say, this administration has been absolutely silent in demanding compensation from China, in demanding reparations from China, in demanding accountability from China. And uh, that ought to be the focus of our China policy right now, is getting to the bottom of the pandemic and making China pay for the millions of lives lost and the trillions of dollars in economic damage. Uh, Stephen, uh, President Biden spoke with China for two hours earlier today via Zoom. Now, she reiterated his opposition to Taiwanese independence. And in the printout from the Chinese government, and who knows if you can believe that, it says that Biden agreed to uh, this one China policy. Was anything achieved here today, do you think? Well, the one-child China policy, not the one-child policy, which I often talk about as well, uh, which is China's one-child policy, but the one-China policy didn't specify which China would be in charge. And so the one-China policy originally was vague in that sense. So we've never actually conceded that the Chinese Communist Party should directly rule Taiwan. We've just acknowledged that eventually there may be one China. But in my view, unless the people of Taiwan democratically vote to join the People's Republic of China, uh, which is about as unlikely as, uh, as you can imagine, uh, that should never happen. Hmm. Next month, the CCP will hold its 20th Congress. Now, this is a major gathering. It occurs every five years or so. Uh, at this time, President Xi is expected to take an unprecedented third term on as president. Now, no doubt Taiwan's going to be a focus here now that Hong Kong has been dominated. What do you expect China will decide regarding Taiwan at this Congress, if anything? Well, I think China, uh, the leadership of the Chinese Communist Party, will decide that, uh, that President Xi Jinping uh, deserves a third term because he's purged and punished all of the people who might stand in the way of that. The last center of resistance was Shanghai. Huh. And what did he do to Shanghai? He locked down the 26 million people of Shanghai for several months on the grounds of COVID, uh, showing the people of Shanghai who was actually in charge. So Xi Jinping would like to bring uh, Taiwan back uh, under the control of the party, to be sure. He promised to do it by 2020, uh, Raymond. Uh, that's a couple of years oh. in the rearview mirror right now. And so uh, he's moving forward, I think, on many fronts to build up his military, to try to undermine Taiwan from within. But I have to tell you that, that opinion polls show that nearly 80% of the people of Taiwan, 24 and a half million people strong, would take up arms against an invading force from mainland China. Mm. So public mm. opinion in Taiwan is unanimously almost in favor of continuing the present relationship where they are a free country, free and independent for all practical purposes. They have regular democratic elections, a peaceful transfer of power from one party to another. They enjoy human rights uh, and freedom of the press, freedom of assembly, freedom of association, all those freedoms which we too hold dear. Uh, they yeah. don't want to lose that to a Communist Party dictatorship. Well, 
Stephen, I, I hear all of that. I watch that. I listen closely to the uh, silence, as you mentioned a moment ago, from the Biden administration. And I keep thinking Hong Kong had all of those features you just ran down as well. And look where they are today. So uh, w w the United States has to decide what it's willing to do vis-a-vis -vis Taiwan. And is it going to go the way of Hong Kong? We'll see. A report released on Tuesday by the Republican staff of the Senate Homeland Security and Governmental Affairs Committee found that for a decade, federal employees, Fed employees rather, were offered contracts with Chinese talent recruitment programs, which often included cash payments and asked to provide information on the U.S. economy, interest rate changes, and policies. In a statement, the committee's ranking Republican Senator Rob Portman of Ohio said this, this investigation makes clear that China's malign efforts at influence and information theft are not limited to science and the technology fields. American economic and monetary policy is also being targeted by the Chinese government. Now, Steve, the report doesn't say whether any sensitive information was compromised, uh, and Fed Chairman Jerome Powell strongly disputed the report's findings. He called the characterizations of some employees unfair. Are you surprised at all that China would target the Fed? And how worrisome is this report to you? No, the, the, the Chinese espionage effort in the United States is, is really uh, much like a, a giant vacuum cleaner, just vacuuming up information data from all sources. And they're willing to, to use drugs, they're willing to use uh, prostitutes, and they're willing to use money to achieve those ends. In fact, we have a, a video of a senior Communist Party official laughing, along with an audience which laughed with him, about how easy it was to corrupt American officials. He said, if you offer one bag of money, and if one bag of money isn't enough, you offer two, and you can go to three. So this sort of corruption uh, is spread by the Communist Party, which is an international uh, terrorist organization, in my view, an organized criminal conspiracy whose first victims, of course, are the Chinese people, but is eager to spread its writ to larger areas of the world. And as I say, they won't stop with Taiwan. Uh, they want yeah. uh, to control wider swaths of the planet, ultimately seeking global control. Well, I want to move on to your book, which touches on all of this. It's called The Politically Incorrect Guide to Pandemics. And you assert there's mounting evidence that leads to the fact that COVID-19 was released from a lab in Wuhan, China. What role do you believe the Chinese Communist Party had in the release of this virus and why, Steve? Well, here's, here's a very interesting question, uh, which I'm often asked. Uh, did the virus leak from the lab or was it deliberately released? And the answer is both. And how that works as follows, mm -hmm. Raymond. Uh, they were working on a bioweapon called the coronavirus, uh, SARS-CoV-2. Mm. And during the course of that research, they had the virus in the test tube ready to go. What they needed was a vaccine to vaccinate their own people because you don't want to release a bioweapon on your own population. And so I mm -hmm. believe the evidence shows that the virus leaked out during vaccine trials in Wuhan. In other words, they were using an attenuated vaccine, a weakened version of the real virus, attenuated vaccine. And sometimes when you use that sort of vaccine, you can actually contract the disease itself. So I believe they inadvertently allowed this bioweapon to leak out of the lab and caused a, an epidemic on their own people. Then what did they do? They deliberately 
grounded the planes in Wuhan from flying to Shanghai and Shandong and Beijing and Guangdong, but they allowed planes to go to Milan, uh, New York City, Madrid, Spain, other hotspots. Uh, they turned out to be hotspots of the coronavirus. So you see, mm. it leaked from the lab during vaccine trials, but it was deliberately spread around the world as a pandemic in the in the weeks thereafter. And I say that in part wow. not only because wow. of the evidence about this epidemic, this pandemic, but this is a pattern of behavior on the part right. of the Chinese Communist Party. In 58, well, you write about this. A, yeah, you write about yeah. this in the book. The, the Asian flu in 57, the Hong Kong flu in 68, SARS in 2003, and on and on. Uh, most recently, COVID-19. Uh, you write that COVID's not the last virus you see coming from China. Why do you say that? Well, I say that because uh, the Communist Party has had an active bioweapons program uh, since taking power in 1950. Uh, sadly, during the uh, Japanese invasion of China, the Japanese actually used bioweapons against the Chinese population, anthrax mostly, bubonic plague partially. And those facilities were taken over uh, by the Communist Party when it took power. But things moved to a new level after 2000 when it became possible to manipulate genomes. And it also became possible to come send your scientists to the United States to labs that were funded by Dr. Anthony Fauci, where they could learn gain-of-function research to make viruses more infectious and lethal, and then take that technology back to China. And then it also became possible, and this is, I think, Dr. Anthony Fauci's original pandemic sin. The original sin of Dr. Fauci was, was promoting this gain-of-function research. And then, once it was banned in the United States in 2017, he took his, his uh, gain-of-function research to labs around the world, including the Wuhan Institute of Virology, which was working on coronaviruses. There's a whole paper trail uh, going back over 10 years of how they were enhancing the infectiousness and lethality of coronaviruses. Uh, there are people like Richard Ebright of EcoHealth Alliance, who is getting funding from Dr. Anthony Fauci's shop, talking about, in November of 2019, of all times, talking about how successful the Wuhan Institute of Virology was in genetically engineering coronaviruses using gain-of-function research and how they were uh, able to, uh, to infect mice uh, humanized mice, uh, showing that they could infect human beings. So all of this is on the record. There's no point in denying that it came from the lab. There's no point in denying, as uh, as Dr. Fauci has, that money was going indirectly from uh, the National Institute of Health through EcoHealth Alliance to the Wuhan lab. There's no point denying that the head of the lab, Dr. Shi Zhangli, was trained in the United States at labs that he funded. So we basically handed over to the Chinese Communist Party's bioweapons expert, experts the ability to make a bioweapon. And surprise, surprise, that's exactly what they did. Hmm. In the book, you point out that pandemics not only kill people, they hurt and can potentially destroy economies, destabilize countries. And you go on to write about the liberties lost during the COVID shutdowns, quote, those who violated the quarantine had the full weight of the law dropped upon them. But the real vitriol was reserved for those who dared to come out and protest the Fauci-inspired lockdowns in places such as New York, California, Virginia, and Michigan. These crowds of normal Americans who simply wanted to get on with their lives were attacked as racists, fascists, and extremists. How much damage was done by Fauci and the CDC regarding misinforming the public about 
COVID-19 and who was really affected and the promotion of these lockdowns? Oh, I mean, uh, tens of trillions of dollars in economic damage uh, to the United States and, of course, to the world economy. And as I would argue, it was done deliberately. This was probably the most successful uh, weapon in release in human history. Millions of people have died, tens of trillions of dollars in economic damage. And the Biden administration appears incapable of trying to call China to account for that. I, I was pleased uh, the other day, uh, we had President Trump down in Tampa giving a speech, and he mentioned as one of the articles that he would pursue in the future was setting up a commission to have accountability for China for the release of uh, the coronavirus on the world. Uh, we need leaders in the United States to be calling China to account, because if they're not called to account, I'm afraid that lurking in a test tube somewhere, perhaps in the Wuhan Institute of Virology itself, is another coronavirus, another virus of a different kind that will be released at the appropriate time. And I ask myself, why wouldn't they release it? Uh, the last release was successful. It caused damage to their principal adversary, their principal enemy they regard us. And uh, there, have been, there have been no consequences, no reparations paid, uh, no damages demanded from China by the United States. Why wouldn't they do it again? Are there any ethical or moral constraints that would prevent the leaders of the Chinese Communist Party, who've killed tens of millions of their own people, from doing this again to the world? I think not. In a recent interview on Fox, Dr. Deborah Burks, the former COVID response coordinator, she was asked what people who have not been vaccinated should be thinking when they see President Biden and others who have been vaccinated and boosted getting COVID. Well, if you're across the South um, and you're in the middle of this wave, what's going to save you right now is Paxlovid. I knew these vaccines were not going to protect against infection, and I think we overplayed the vaccines. We overplayed the vaccines. What do you make of that admission? Well, I'm, I make of that admission that, uh, that she and Anthony Fauci are not going to be uh, uh, on very good terms from now on, because uh, Dr. Anthony Fauci uh, not only was obsessed with gain-of-function research, and we know how that turned out with the creation of the mm -hmm. coronavirus in the lab, but he was also obsessed with using mRNA vaccines uh, to mm -hmm. trick the body into making parts of viruses that would then uh, produce an immune response, hopefully uh, against a particular disease. Uh, he's been trying that now for 25 years. There's a, and, and he's never succeeded. And in my view, he didn't succeed in this time. I, I think that huh. the, 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 and it is very interesting to me, Raymond, that China does not allow the use of the mRNA vaccines. They are using a traditional attenuated vaccine. What do they know mm. that we don't know? What we do know, of yeah. course, is that Big Pharma has made $100 billion off guaranteed government contracts and have been indemnified from lawsuits. So if you suffer it's an adverse medical effect, you can't seek damages from the company that produced the drug. Yeah, and they sat on top of the Novavax vaccine, which we paid for. The Trump administration right. gave them a billion dollars to, to, to come up with a vaccine. The FDA sat on it and didn't approve it for use until earlier this year. Uh, on Saturday, the World Health Organization declared monkeypox a global public health emergency. Steve, Dr. Tedros, the uh, director general, overruled a panel of advisors 
who could not come to a consensus. Now, according to the WHO, they only classify COVID-19 and polio this way as a public health emergency of international concern. Now monkeypox has been a concern for years in African countries, but in recent weeks, the virus has spread worldwide to some 75 countries. There are about 16,000 cases. Nearly all those infections outside Africa have occurred among men who have sex with other men. What do you make of the WHO monkeypox declaration, Steve? And where is this leading? Uh, Dr. Dr. Tedros is is overriding his own um, his own advisory commission, which has probably between the the couple dozen advisors, a couple hundred years of experience uh, in pandemics and viruses. Uh, he's not even a medical doctor. Uh, and then, of course, his statement today was that that perhaps men who have sex with men ought to temporarily reconsider uh, their sexual practices. Um, look. That strikes me as uh, a rather an underreaction, given the fact that in response to the coronavirus, we were all subject to lockdown for weeks on end. Our churches were closed. Businesses were shuttered. Uh, pastors were arrested for trying to open their doors and minister to the people who came to them for help. And yet what we hear now uh, is that um, people should perhaps reconsider uh, their sex life. Uh, I, I'm reminded of a statement that Father Paul Marx used to make. He said, no one ever died of sex. Perhaps it would be best if people spoke honestly and openly about the fact that the way to stop monkeypox is the way to stop having, um, indulging your sexual appetites at the present time. What do you hope people get from your politically incorrect guide to pandemics? Why did you write this book now? I wrote the book because, first of all, China is the great breeding ground of pandemics and that the Chinese Communist Party has now four times uh, released a pandemic on the world, tried to release a pandemic on the world, and they will do it again, uh, especially if there are no repercussions for the last release. Uh, secondly, people need to know that, that we're still living with the aftermath of the Spanish flu, which killed 40 or 50 million people in 1918, 1919. It's known as the mother of all pandemics because we're still dealing with the variants every winter flu season, but we don't die in large numbers. So basic evolutionary biology tells you that the coronavirus is evolving into less lethal, less dangerous forms. So let's all calm down about this. Let's, you know, Fauci is going to talk about a wave this fall. Omicron should be pronounced, I'm a cold. Protect yourself, take reasonable precautions, but uh, this is not a viral Armageddon. The Politically Incorrect Guide to Pandemics by Stephen Mosher is available now at bookstores everywhere and online. Stephen, thank you for being here. Thank you. Geopolitics and Empire is joined by Stephen Mosher, who is an internationally recognized authority on China and population issues, as well as an acclaimed author speaker. He has worked tirelessly since 1979 to fight coercive population control programs. In 1979, Stephen was the first American social scientist to visit mainland China, invited there by the Chinese government. Stephen has appeared uh, numerous times before Congress as an expert in world population, China, and human rights abuses. His most recent book is Bully of Asia, why China, China's dream is the new threat to world order. Uh, I've got the digital copy on my Kindle here. It's great to have you with us, uh, Mr. Mosher. Well, it's good to be here with you today and, and talk about these important topics. 
Yes. And, you know, my biggest uh, concern, as listeners well know, is the totalitarian and technocratic digital dystopia and social credit system that is being thrust upon uh, upon the West. But before I, we, you know, we get to that, perhaps you could give us some context uh, on China, uh, since you have great uh, experience uh, in that respect. And, you know, you say that it invented totalitarianism long ago, a sort of early technocracy, as I would call it. Uh, it's mentioned in your book as the totalitarian regulation of society in the service of the state, the world's first big brother. And so perhaps if you can give us some background context before we look at what's happening today. Well, you know, here's what people don't know, but will know after listening to uh, to this podcast. And that is that China invented totalitarianism before the birth of Christ, 2000 years before the birth of uh, Vladimir Ilyich Lenin and uh, Karl Marx. Uh, totalitarian was almost was already on the march in China. Uh, there was an ancient school of thought called in Chinese fajia, which means legalism, which argues that all power ought to be concentrated in the hands of the state and that the state ought to be ruled by a single leader. And there's an ancient Chinese saying that just as there cannot be two suns in the sky, so there can only be one emperor. So the first bureaucratic totalitarian regime ever to exist on the planet was actually uh, existing in China over 2000 years ago. And the reason it came about was this, uh, 3,000 years ago in China, now we're talking about long, long look back at, at ancient history, right? Uh, 3,000 years ago in China, uh, China was divided into a, a feudalistic uh, system uh, consisting of literally hundreds of tiny feudal states led by people that we would call in English barons and, and dukes and, and, and uh, counts and so forth. And over time, all of these little dukes and counts and, and, and uh, barons eager to enlarge their own territory, began to make war on each other. And there was a warring states period that lasted literally for hundreds of years in China, from about 700 BC to 200 BC, when China was finally unified under a single leader. And during this course, uh, you know, we had in the West, we had a hundred years war. That's a long time to be at war. In China, they had a 500 years war. And at the end of that process, a single state existed covering all of the North China plain and most of central China, extending out even to the far West. And that single state was the state of Qin, from which we get the word China. And how that single state of Qin came to dominate these hundreds of, of baronies and dukedoms over time was this. They consolidated all hand, all power in the hands of the state. Uh, the economy was controlled by the state. The legalists advised, the early totalitarians in China called the legalists, advised that the state should control the production of iron because from iron you can make steel and farm implements and control food production and, and uh, armed conflict. Uh, it, 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 it said that the state should control salt because salt is a vital element of the human diet and you can't live without it. And so important elements of the economy were already controlled by the state. The legalists also told the, the ruler of the Qin dynasty that he should set up propaganda teams to control the very thoughts of the people uh, in his realm. And so these propaganda teams uh, went around the countryside uh, singing praises of the emperor and singing praises of the state. This was the first 
brainwashing. Brainwashing was actually invented in China over 2,000 years ago. Uh, the legalists also advised burning the books and killing the scholars who propagated competing ideologies. And so literally hundreds of, uh, of volumes of ancient books arguing for other forms of social organization, other kinds of statecraft were all burned. You could not keep a book, one of these forbidden books, without being yourself accused of a crime and, uh, and being beheaded. Confucian scholars, the scholar, the followers of Confucius and Mencius, of the Taoists, all of the other ancient philosophers of China were killed by the hundreds in very, very cruel fashion. So you had, in 2000 years ago, you had a state ideology. You had uh, it propagated by, by a massive nationwide uh, brainwashing operation, propaganda operation. Uh, you had political commissars in the military to make sure the generals uh, did not get it into their heads that they should replace the emperor. So the political commissars were watching over the behavior of military officers, just as you find in totalitarian regimes today. Uh, you had um, concentration camps uh, invented in China over 2,000 years ago. People were conscripted, not just into the army, they were conscripted into great labor projects and sent to work on the Great Wall. That's how the Great Wall was built, by masses of conscripted laborers who lived in concentration camps all their lives. And when they died, their bodies were thrown into the Great Wall, used as kind of human mortar. Uh, the Great Canals of China were also dug in the same fashion. So all of the things that we associate with modern Marxist-Leninism, the, 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 the idea that you can achieve total control over a population and use it uh, for the purposes of the state and the state's ruler. Uh, these were all invented in China by the legalists 2,000, 2,500 years ago. And China has been a society run in totalitarian fashion ever since. And so when you get to the 20th century, you see the Chinese Communist Party in the early 20s being formed in China. Mao Zedong was one of its early members, not its first founder, but an early joiner of the Communist Party. And what he saw and the other leaders of China saw in the revolutionary movement was a Western ideology that basically mimicked what China had invented 2,000 years before. But it had a very modern gloss. It had a scientific gloss. It, it claimed that this was the latest in Western uh, philosophical thinking, but it had deep, deep resonances in Chinese history. And so naturally, it appealed to them in that fashion as well. And so, you know, in the early days, Chairman Mao, uh, in the 1920s and 30s, in his very early writings, he would often quote Lenin and Marx and Stalin. And then later on, when we get to the late 40s and 50s and 60s, who is he quoting? He's quoting the ancient legalists. He's writing poems about the founder of the Qin dynasty, the first uh, Chinese dragon. Uh, he's emulating consciously uh, and vocalizing it that he's emulating the founder of the Qin dynasty, saying things like uh, the first ruler of the Qin dynasty, the Qin Shi Huangdi, the first emperor of the Qin dynasty, uh, only killed a few hundred Confucian scholars. Ch Mao bragged, I've killed hundreds of thousands of scholars uh, who oppose communism. So communism is really just a, another way in Chinese parlance of saying 
ancient bureaucratic totalitarianism that has characterized Chinese governance from the beginning. Yeah, that's a, a, you know, a brief snapshot of, of thousands of years of history. And I recommend people get the book uh, to, to, you know, it's, it's a very easy read and there's a lot in there uh, so they can get uh, more of the details. And I, I, I did stand uh, on the Great Wall some 15 plus years ago. I was in China. I did a historical tour as a, a history major. And there are a lot of amazing things to see uh, in China. And you also, it's interesting, you touch on Russia briefly in your book, and I would agree with your assessment. You consider, you don't consider Russia as a great threat and that it just sort of wants to return to some semblance, semblance of its Tsarist sort of a real politic days and just uh, patch together parts of its uh, empire. Um, but you consider today great threats to consist principally of alternative ideo ideologies of civilizational states like China. And so if we get up to speed today, you know, is is China, in your view, the principal threat today? And, you know, what is this new old uh, system or organizational emperor um, that it, you know, what is its system like today? And you also talk about it, uh, China having a superior superiority complex uh, uh, and so forth. Well, that's that's a lot to cover. But let me let me start with the Great Wall, because everybody knows the Great Wall is the only human construction that you can see from space. But you should you should remember and, and people listening should remember that when you stood on the Great Wall, you were standing on the bodies of, of the slaves that had been conscripted 2000 years ago to build it and kept in concentration camps under the orders of the emperor. So uh, you were standing on, on a monument to, in, in a sense, to slavery. Uh, the other thing I would say is that a lot of people, when they, when they think of China, uh, they think of Confucianism. And they think of the idea that, you know, that, 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 yeah, Confucianism was a model of social control, but it was one that told the people gently that they should uh, see the emperor as a father figure, that younger brothers should respect older brothers, that wives should respect husbands, that uh, students should respect teachers. And, and there's an impression that the Confucian uh, way of thinking, the Confucian philosophy was dominant in China. It was never dominant. It was the silken costume that covered the iron scaffolding of totalitarianism. At base, at root, the Chinese uh, govern system of governance has always been based on, on bureaucratic totalitarianism, although they cover it with the silken garment in ancient times of Confucianism, which says that the people should kowtow to the emperor of their own accord because he's a, a godlike deity, he's a father figure, he only has your best interests at heart. And in the same way, they use communism as the silken garb covering the iron scaffolding of bureaucratic totalitarianism, because we know that ultimately communism is not going to cause, it's not going to cause, lead to the, the state withering away. It's not going to lead to equality among people. It is just a fantasy. It is a fraud. It is a facade in order to allow a tiny number of people to take absolute power over the rest of the population. That's what communism is. It's just a fraud in the same way that Confucianism over the centuries was a fraud as well, disguising uh, the totalitarianism that is at root. And as far as Russia is concerned, Russia was Christianized a thousand years ago uh, by, by St. Cyril and Methodius. That's where we get the Cyrillic alphabet. Um, it has been uh, part of the West, aspiring to be part of the West for a millennium. 
And that process should be allowed to come to, conclu- uh, to completion because the, the, the opposite, though, appears to be happening now. And I don't want to go into that in great depth now. We might talk about that later if we have time. But the opposite, we seem to be driving Russia into the back into the arms of China. Now, I'm old enough to remember uh, the Sino-Soviet bloc in the 1950s when Russia, this, then the Soviet Union, uh, was united by a supposedly common ideology with the People's Republic of China and threatened to dominate the Eurasian landmass. And at the time, we thought it was Russian industry, Russian technology, combined with China's population that would create a force capable of dominating Eurasia and perhaps wider uh, parts of the world. Now, if we drive Russia completely into the arms of China, you are combining Russia's raw materials, its resources, its oil and natural gas, its wheat, with the huge Chinese population, which is lives on a country that is resource poor, and China's industrial base, which needs the raw materials from Russia to function. And again, you've created a Eurasian superpower capable of dominating Eurasia and wider parts of the world. That's the worst possible outcome of the current conflict in Ukraine, in my view, is, is, is our fusing together inadvertently or somehow deliberately uh, these two powers into a single uh, hostile mass that we will be confronting if it happens for decades in the future. That's, uh, that's a bad, bad outcome. Yeah, you touched on one of my questions, which was precisely that. In your book, you cite Halford McKinder, which is often brought up on this podcast, given the title Geopolitics and Empire. Uh, I want to get your thoughts on, you know, on the Belt and Road, um, which seems like it's attempting to fulfill McKinder's uh, prophecy. You know, what do you make of it? Does it really have uh, teeth as it's hyped up to be? Uh, Others say that it's not, you know, that it's falling apart in some respects. Uh, I mean, so do do you see the world island, uh, you know, heartland coming together? Well, I mean, that's 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 my fear uh, that, uh, again, if you if you combine uh, China's industry and population with Russia's raw materials, uh, you have uh, a state capable of dominating not just the the world island, uh, but uh, (laughs) but the other continents as well, North and South America and Australia over time. So so I think that's a, a, a real threat that we're currently we're currently facing uh you know both russia and china have a lot a lot of vulnerabilities and so this outcome is by no means preordained but i think it's the worst possible strategic outcome of our of our current conflict um there's a lot to talk about in this regard of course yeah and you know another question i had was to look over the past two plus years, what's been going on. I know you've been commenting on this back in January of 2020. Uh, I had been the first to interview the author of the Bioweapons Act, Dr. Francis Boyle, on his you know, thoughts regarding coronavirus. Um, yeah. His thesis was that coronavirus um, 
is an offensive biological warfare weapon that leaked out of the BSL-4 lab in, in Wuhan. Our interview went viral and was, of course, deleted from YouTube. And then uh, of course it was. Uh, Associated Press wrote, wrote a hit piece uh, on us. And I got my Patreon as a result uh, deleted because of that. But, you know, my, my biggest fear over the past two years has not been so much the health care, rather the tyrannical, uh, the tyrannical response by all of the world's governments in the form of lockdowns, shutdowns, mandatory medical interventions, uh, what I call COVID-1984, basically. Uh, you know, what's your take on the past two plus years, um, you know, everything that we've been uh, experiencing, the pandemic and virus and so on? Well, I just wrote a book, uh, which is coming out in July, called The Politically Incorrect Guide to Pandemics. And I mentioned uh, Dr. Francis Boyle's work in that book because I think he's perfectly correct. Uh, he's one of the ones who drafted the Biological Weapons Convention some decades ago. He's an attorney by training. I'm actually a biologist uh, in, my, in my former life. I went through a PhD program in biology. And, and so I was one of the ones who, along with uh, Dr. Boyle, early was saying this is obviously a creation of the lab, probably the Wuhan Institute of Virology, which was doing gain-of-function research. I looked at the backbone of the coronavirus, that is to say, the uh, string of nucleotides that enable it, that is packaged in the little viral envelope and that goes into cells and then replicates itself. If you look at that, it has some very unusual insertions. And, and it's obviously a product of the lab. Uh, it uses a specific technique that is designed um, in every case to create a virus that is more infectious. And this thing, I believe, was clearly part of a bioweapons program. I have a whole chapter in my forthcoming book about the history of bioweapons research in China and how Chinese uh, military leaders who are in charge of the bioweapons program, like uh, people like uh, Major General Chun Wei, Major General Chun, have said openly that China needs to develop bioweapons. The former head of the National Defense University has said openly, and he's a member of the Central Committee of the Chinese Communist Party, so no small figure in the Chinese Communist Party's apparatus, uh, said that uh, the, the new high ground is the development of genetically targeted, ethnically targeted bioweapons. That is to say, bioweapons that target I don't know, Koreans or Japanese or Vietnamese or uh, Caucasians, but, but to which uh, the Chinese people are naturally or have a natural or acquired immunity by vaccination. And Major General Chun Wei has said things like, uh, before you can develop a sword, um, before you can develop a shield rather, I'm translating the Chinese in my mind as I speak, before you can develop uh, the shield, you need a sword. The sword in this case was the uh, virus, uh, SARS-CoV-2, as they call it. I call it the China virus that was developed in the lab. That was the sword. That was the bioweapon. And they were working on a shield when the bioweapon itself, the China virus, got out of the lab, I think, in the, in the, in the course of vaccine trials. Um, that part, you know, we, we don't have the details on because we've been forbidden from going into the lab. And we've been forbidden from having access to the records of the lab. Why? Because they were doing secret bioweapons research. So, I mean, I, we could talk about this uh, at great length. 
But I wrote about this in the pages of the New York Post in early February. And the same thing happened to me that happened to you. In fact, it happened to the New York Post. They lost their Twitter account. This this article, they were blocked on Facebook. Why? Because I had written that it came from the lab and it was created in the lab. And I am absolutely certain, uh, along with Dr. Francis Boyle and everyone else who has since begun to speak out about this, uh, violating Dr. Fauci's rule, of course, Dr. Anthony Fauci, basic rule is that if you claim that uh, the virus originated in a lab and uh, that I was doing gain of function research there, you'll never get funding from my $6.1 billion annual budget at the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Health. He hasn't actually said that, but I'm just speculating that that's the, uh, the message that has uh, gone out in various ways to virology researchers around the world, all of whom, at least the major ones, all of whom have gotten funding in the past and probably hope to get funding in the future uh, from the, uh, the NIH. So there's been a cover-up. Uh, there has been a, an attempt by social media to aid the cover-up, and we've seen that in multiple areas now. Uh, and, and I believe that, that uh, China is right now perfecting a, a social credit system, uh, which will monitor everyone in real time using their computers, using their cell phones, using their automobiles, using any electronic device that they happen to use. And, and that everyone in real time is being monitored in China by artificial intelligence and their social credit score goes up or down depending on their behavior. And I believe that the pandemic here in the United States and the West was intended to force you to get the vaccine, uh, that the vaccine in turn was to force you to get the vaccine passport. The passport in turn was to force you to get the social credit score. And the social credit score is to force you to obey the government forever. And the government can then, based on your social credit score, uh, deny you access to oh, I don't know, the money in your bank account, food, medicine, housing, travel, you name it. That's what's happening in China right now. And the aspiring totalitarians in the West uh, who are in politics because they're interested in power uh, would like to do the same thing here. So in a sense, China, uh, which invented totalitarianism 2000 years ago, continues to be the model for uh, totalitarians, would-be totalitarians, today in the West, who I think are in great uh, uh, social credit uh, score envy of China right now and would like to impose the same thing on us. I do not think, by the way, they will succeed. Yeah, that was actually my my next question. And, you know, just to comment previously, I've uh, interviewed Soviet military uh, physician Igor Shepard, who has the same opinion uh, on you regarding the China the virus and, and the vaccines. And I just want, also wanted, wanted to read a recent tweet of yours where you said, internal passports were formerly only used by communist countries. Now everyone is to have one. The implications for freedom are sobering. And that's true. Uh, you know, if you look at the Soviet Union, to travel within the Soviet Union, you needed right. an internal passport. Here in Me Mexico, which everyone lauds, you know, the wild free West, which isn't the case uh, in the state where I am. In January, they initiated vaccine certificates for limited locations. And the governor was discussing uh, requiring a vaccine certificate to enter and exit this one state in, in Mexico. Uh, and so 
this is this is insane. And you know, I can't I can't even go back to my homes. I'm a Croatian citizen. I'm, I'm an American. Uh, you know, my wife is not a U.S. citizen. She has to be vaccinated to enter. So you know, we can't go to the U.S. Uh, I refuse to you know submit to these medical interventions like PCR tests. So that means I can't go back home to uh, Croatia. And there's evidence that the PCR test is to take your DNA. I found Chinese articles uh, in the past where they, they said precisely that, that, you know, doing the, the, these sorts of tests was them getting the DNA to plug into the social credit system because, you know, they need your biometrics, your iris, your blood, your DNA, uh, everything. Um, and uh, just as you said, you know, they're working on these digital passports, which will link uh, to all facets of our lives. And if we don't behave, we saw in Canada, people's bank accounts are being frozen. They're now talking in Canada about uh, outright taking your 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 home, your property, uh, if if you uh, protest, and you know we won't be able to work uh, here where, where I used to work at the university in Mexico. Uh, you can't. I, one of my former coworkers was fired for not being uh, injected. Um, you know we can't travel, and we saw in countries like Philippines, you can't even leave your home if you're not vaccinated. And we've seen Justin Trudeau on video praise. He literally said he was praising Chinese uh, dictatorship, and you don't think it's going to succeed? I'm I'm a bit more cynical or pessimistic. I I kind of see it advancing. Why don't you think uh, it will succeed? Well, I don't think it will succeed because of the the uh, the fact that uh, that that it is now becoming clear that the only solution to dealing with the uh, COVID. Uh, pandemic is to recognize that uh, COVID is going to be with us forever and that we're going to have to deal with it as we deal with the seasonal flu. Now, I think the world uh, always makes a mistake when it emulates China, okay? Because China is is kind of the, the totalitarian state par excellence, right? And I give you an example. Um, China right now is locked down 30 uh, 26 million people in Shanghai, which is its financial center, it, one of its major industrial centers, uh, its major shipping port. And why have they done that? Because they are still pursuing the fantasy of COVID zero. They still believe that in the totalitarian insanity, they still believe that they can stamp out a highly infectious airborne respiratory virus if they simply impose enough controls on the Chinese people. Um, so what are they doing in Shanghai? Well, they're doing the same thing that the countries of Germany and Austria and Italy and uh, Australia, New Zealand, Western countries, supposedly with Western values, did. They've been locking down people in their homes. They have not been allowing them in, in the case of uh, the current lockdown in Shanghai, for example, they've got 26 million people locked inside their apartments, staring at their now empty refrigerators. They can't even go out to buy food. They can't, if they go outside to forage for food, uh, they, they have to be afraid of being arrested and incarcerated. Um, I, I just saw one tweet from a foreigner in Shanghai who said this, he said, it's day 16 of our COVID lockdown in Shanghai and food is what, on, what is on everybody's mind. We aren't allowed to leave home, he says, so delivery is the only way to get food. I was up at 6 a.m. yesterday trying to get any kind of delivery, but failed. Nothing was available all day, nothing is available today. Yet the homebound ones are the lucky ones because they're testing everybody, 26 million people, every other day. And if you test positive for COVID, 
you're sent off to a quarantine camp, which is a concentration camp by another name. On Wednesday, they had 17,000 Shanghainese tested positive. Now, most of them didn't have symptoms, right? Like 95% had no symptoms of COVID, a few hundred did, but they were nonetheless all hauled off to these hastily erected uh, camps, quarantine camps. And uh, children are being taken away from parents. Uh, there are, <laughs> they call them, uh, the police are busy scouring the city streets for anyone who dares to come out and, and even take a walk or look for food. Uh, the Chinese people call the, uh, call the police the big whites. And the reason they call them the big whites is because they're all wearing these head to toe hazmat suits, which are white, right? And so the big whites are everywhere. And if they find somebody who's not supposed to be out, uh, they arrest them on the spot. They often beat them and they take them not, not to the quarantine camps. Uh, they take them to, uh, to the police station where they're formally arrested and sent to prison camps. So, um, you know, and there are fights in the quarantine camps over food and water because that's in short supply. Um, as these stories suggest, you know, China continues to unleash another COVID horror story on its population. But the reason I see, back to your, back to your question, the reason I see that, that things are, are not going to go full totalitarian in this round of the pandemic, at least, is because virtually every person on the planet now recognizes that we're going to simply have to live with the coronavirus from now on, you know, in the same way that we live with the seasonal flu. Uh, even those countries that went into the mass containment model, following China lockstep, down the, down the primrose path to total control. Even countries like New Zealand and Australia, uh, Germany and Italy are now backing away from, uh, from this kind of COVID zero fantasy. The, uh, the German parliament just voted against mandatory vaccines. Australia's uh, leader has said, we're just simply gonna have to live with the coronavirus. So has New Zealand. Now, why is China still pursuing COVID zero? Well, you might say that just like every other political group in the world, they, they don't want to admit they were wrong, right? In fact, one official in China who was asked recently, uh, why don't uh, we start treating COVID like we treat the, uh, the annual flu? He said, uh, this was the top official from the uh, National Health Administration uh, in China, Chinese government. He said, well, if we stop with all the containment measures now, it means that all the previous eth efforts were for nothing. Well, of course they were for nothing. The virus is going to virus. You can't do anything about it. It's going to spread. But I think there's something else going on here. And I think at a very a deeper level, I see the Communist Party's insistence on absolute lockdowns, absolute control, as an expression of a larger drive for total control. You know, and I'm reminded, I was in China back in 1980. I was first American social scientist, as you told the audience at the beginning allowed into China. I spent a year living in a Chinese commune. I had total access. And when the one child's policy began, I was in the operating room while they were forcibly sterilizing and forcibly aborting women, some of which, uh, some of whom were at nine months gestation, almost ready to give birth when their babies were being killed. Why did they do that? Because the head of the Family Planning Association of China, a member of, of the Communist Party's Politburo said this. She said, we are a socialist country. We can control reproduction in the same way we control production. We can control it under a state plan. And what do you see today in China? You see Xi Jinping saying the same kind of thing. His attitude seems to be, we're a socialist country. We can control 
the replication of a highly infectious virus in the same way we control production and reproduction in years past under a state plan. I doubt it, but they're not going to give up their drive for totalitarian control until millions of Chinese people are in the streets screaming at them saying, we're not going to take it anymore. Now, I think we're past that in the West, at least right now. We see Italy, uh, Germany, Australia, New Zealand backing away from uh, the total COVID control that some of them would have liked to impose upon us. So I think they've lost this round. It doesn't mean they're going to lose the next round. It doesn't mean we don't have to be taking back in the United States, uh, the U.S. Congress and putting a president who respects the Bill of Rights and the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution in this country and people in other countries should be doing the same thing. They'll be back. The totalitarians will be back. And their model continues to be the People's Republic of China. Make no mistake about that. You remind me of a past guest I've spoken to, Gregory Copley, who's got a book called New Total War. And he talks about how we are in this new total war with with uh, China and it encompasses information warfare, biowarfare, all kinds of stuff. Uh, you know, things are heating up. Many analysts I speak to think China will go for uh, Taiwan and that this will uh, be the war trigger. I, in some ways, think war is inevitable. You also talk about China's buildup uh, to war through various means. Um, you know, what are your, what's your take on, on the future from here on out? Um, you know, are we in danger of a World War III uh, with China? Well, I, I mean, we're in danger of World War III right now because uh, we have the current occupant of the White House uh, saying, uh, making wild remarks about um, about the current leader of Russia. I, I'm not a fan of Vladimir Putin, who is, uh, but but uh, to call him in the middle of a conflict a war criminal uh, with the suggestion that somehow uh, one day we're going to destroy the Russian army and government and, and arrest Putin and his cohort and put them on trial. It's a very dangerous thing to be saying. Uh, I also, you know, take, um, take issue with his recent statement, uh, uh, President Joe Biden, who apparently thinks he's still vice president, uh, he said that the Ukraine-Russian war was going to give birth to a, quote, new world order, and that the U.S. was going to lead it. Well, he's certainly right that that if we handle this conflict wrong, uh, there's going to be a new world order. But the United States is not going to lead it. Uh, that that uh, China, with Russia as a kind of tributary state, is going to lead it. You know, we have this collective rush to impose economic sanctions, and 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 we seem to be destroying the existing world order in the process in trying to get trying to punish the oligarchs in Russia uh, who support Putin, uh, we are undermining, I don't know, respect for contracts. Uh, We're undermining the rule of law. We're undermining our own banking system. We're undermining the protection of private property. We're undermining the current world order in multiple ways. And at the end of the day, if we destroy the current world order in the process of trying to destroy Vladimir Putin, uh, we will wind up the worse because, you know, for the last 50 years, since the Nixon overture to China, Nixon went to China in 1972, it's been U.S. policy to drive a wedge between the two Eurasian giants, right? The whole idea of playing the China card was to wrest China away from any sort of alliance 
of convenient pseudo-alliance or military alliance with the Soviet Union. And it succeeded. Now, I'm not a great fan of, of Henry Kissinger, but nonetheless, we have succeeded in the last 50 years in keeping the two Eurasian giants apart from reforging the Sino-Soviet bloc. And now we seem to be uh, moving in the other direction. We seem to be leaving uh, Putin with very little choice but to move down that road. And you saw that at the beginning of the Ukraine invasion, where China and Russia signed a 5,000-word document, probably negotiated, you know, 5,000-word documents do not get negotiated overnight. This was months in the making. Uh, China, I believe, encouraged Vladimir Putin to go into Ukraine as kind of a test case to see how the West would react if a country decided to try to recover some of its lost territory. It was kind of a model for the future effort by the People's Republic of China to send an armada across the 90 mile wide Taiwan Straits, do an amphibious invasion and take back what they considered to be the lost province of Taiwan. So that's why they encouraged uh, Putin to go into Ukraine to see the Western response. They probably thought far enough ahead because these people uh, have a hundred year plan. They're not just thinking about the next election or the next opinion poll, which I'm afraid the people in the White House now are thinking about and no further. They're thinking about decades to come. And they're also thinking if the Western sanctions are severe enough to drive Putin into our arms, that's not a bad thing. That's a good thing. So instead of peeling Russia away from China's orbit, of course, we're forcing Russia to embrace China. And China is there welcoming with open arms. Now, I have to say this about Taiwan. People need to understand that Taiwan has never been ruled from Beijing uh, over the course of over a century. Now, uh, Taiwan was part of the uh, a late addition to the Qing dynasty, which you remember was not a Chinese dynasty at all. It was a Manchu dynasty. The Manchus came over the Great Wall and took over, destroyed the Ming dynasty, which was a Han Chinese dynasty, and replaced it. The horse archers from the north, as they did fairly frequently, came over the Great Wall and dominated China. And it was during that period of time that the fleeing remnants of the Ming dynasty fled across the Taiwan Straits to the island of Taiwan. So that didn't start the population that the Han Chinese didn't start coming over to Taiwan until the fall of the Ming dynasty in 1640, 1642. That's when the settle, a Chinese settlement of Taiwan began. There's a large uh, Aboriginal population on Taiwan who are related to the Filipinos. All right. So it was part of the Qing dynasty, but when the Qing, the Qing dynasty lost a war to Japan in 1895, there was a war over Korea, as you know, being a historian, and the, as a result of the Sino-Japanese War of 1895, Korea became a Japanese colony, and so did Taiwan. Taiwan became a Japanese colony. But a strange thing happened. While the Koreans literally, and you know, I don't use this word lightly, hate the Japanese for the brutal colonization of their country. Japan, for some reason, 
treated Taiwan very differently. The Taiwanese people, half Aborigine and half fleeing from the Manchu dynasty, um, did not fight uh, for very long against the Japanese who came in. The Japanese uh, set up schools, they built hospitals, they started industry in Taiwan. And over time, over the next few decades, Taiwan, the idea was that Taiwan would become uh, the southernmost island in the Japanese island chain, stretching down from Honshu uh, through uh, Kyushu, the big southern island, down through the Ryukyus, Okinawa, and then winding up with Taiwan at the bottom of that island chain. The nearest Japanese island, by the way, in Ryukyus is only about 70 miles away from Taiwan. So the, if you talk to the Taiwanese, as I did in my first uh, research uh, in Taiwan back in 1976, 1977, uh, the Taiwanese all spoke Japanese. I do too. So I was able to conduct some of my interviews uh, with older Japanese, uh, with older Taiwanese and Japanese. Um, they had fond memories of the period of uh, Japanese occupation, believe it or not. Um, and that went on until the war ended in 1945. And Japan was given not to the People's Republic of China, which did not exist. Taiwan was given not to the People's Republic of China, which did not exist. It was given to the Republic of China, which sent over a governor and an army. And when the mainland fell, of course, Chiang Kai-shek came over with a couple million, uh, part of his army, of course, but a lot of people from coastal China, from Shanghai, from Guangdong, fled to Taiwan. Many of them were Christians. Uh, they were fleeing the advancing communists. So uh, Taiwan has never been under communist rule. And today, if you ask the Taiwanese, 77%, uh, over th two, three quarters of the population of the island, say that they would take up arms to defend their freedom uh, if China invaded. And uh, I was, I was, I lived in Taiwan in the 70s and 80s. I lived in Taiwan under uh, the last years of Chiang Kai-shek. After he died, his son, uh, Chiang Jinghua, uh, took over the presidency. But then an interesting thing happened. His vice president was Li Donghui, who was Taiwanese, educated in Taiwan and in Japan, spoke better Japanese, really, than he did Mandarin. And he led the way in the early 1990s to the first free and fair elections in Taiwan and China. And there have been five, I think, free and fair elections uh, in Taiwan uh, for the presidency uh, that have taken place since its full democratization. So Taiwan has passed with flying colors, the final acid test of a democracy. There has been a peaceful transition of power from one political party to another, from the the uh, Minjindang, the Democratic Progressive Party, to the Guomindang, the Nationalist Party, back to the Democratic Progressive Party. And we're in the hands of the Democratic Progressive Party today uh, under the current president. Um, so Taiwan is a full-fledged democracy that respects human rights and is a sovereign state and should be recognized as such by the United States of America. The greatest blunder in the opening to China was the fact that we did not insist on continuing to recognize the Republic of China on Taiwan. Had we done so, we would have diplomatic relations both with Taiwan and with 
the People's Republic of China, and so would dozens and dozens of other countries. We would be in the same situation vis-a-vis the two Chinas that we were in regard to the two Germanys, where we had diplomatic recognition, not just with West Germany, but from 1984 on, I believe, from with uh, East Germany as well. Uh, that would, would have helped to guarantee peace across the Taiwan Straits. Right now, of course, we face the threat of war. And it's a threat that the, that the Chinese communist leaders make constantly. They make it every time they send an airplane into Taiwan's uh, air, air identification zone, which they do almost on a daily basis. They send fighters and bombers uh, and uh, into Taiwan's airspace. They do it every time they threaten to take to use military force to take back Taiwan if Taiwan doesn't simply surrender. Well, Taiwan's not going to surrender, and it's not in our interest that, that they surrender. But it is in our interest to treat Taiwan very differently from Ukraine. You see, because the Biden administration was withholding weapons from Ukraine and only began to provide weapons after the invasion occurred. We have to do the opposite with regard to Taiwan. We have to arm Taiwan to the teeth now so that Taiwan kind of adopts a porcupine strategy. Sure, China's a lot bigger. It has a large Navy. It's developed uh, a Marine for um, a Marine landing force. Uh, the Chinese People's Liberation Army Marines have tens of thousands of Marines in training. But if Taiwan has the ability to stop an invading fleet from crossing the Taiwan Straits, that invasion will never occur. But we have to arm them now. They can afford to pay for it. They're a developed country with a per capita income, I think of about $25,000 a year. Uh, They can afford to pay for these advanced weapon systems. We should not refuse to supply them with weapons for fear of offending Beijing. Because once again, here is where peace through strength will demonstrate once again, that the way to preserve the peace, as the ancient Romans said, was to prepare for war. Um, we're supposed to send, for example, 100 Harpoon anti-ship missiles to Taiwan. The sale has already been approved. The missiles aren't due to get there until 2025. They should get there tomorrow. Uh, those would be a very effective weapon against any invading fleet. So um, we can forestall a Chinese invasion of Taiwan, and we should, not by getting American troops involved, uh, but by providing Taiwan with the defensive weapons it needs now uh, that can, it can use to defend itself. Do you have any um, final thought for us, recommendations? You know, what do we do? How do we, uh, as individuals or, or uh, as nations, you know, survive this tyranny, whether it's the, the social credit score or nuclear war? I mean, I, I, I'm in contact with people uh, messaging me, uh, consulting with me, uh, who are, you know, some people are running for the hills in different countries, even fleeing here to Mexico. Um, you know, any final thoughts uh, for us? Well, I do think that, that that we're on the edge of a precipice here in the United States and, and in a sense, around the whole world, uh, that, that, that there are several threats that are simultaneously um, threatening uh, our future. Uh, One of those threats, of course, uh, was the threat that uh, China would unleash uh, a highly infectious, deadly virus on the world to which it had immunized its own people against. 
Well, that threat didn't materialize because I think the, the genie got out of the bottle, the virus got out of the lab before they had a defense against it, and they suffered along with the rest of the world. So that threat, I think, is receding, but we have to remain alert because uh, if, if Vladimir Ilyich Lenin is said uh, apocryphally uh, to, to, have, to have said on one occasion that the quickest way to dominate a population, dominate the masses is through the healthcare system. I don't know whether that's an accurate quote or not. I can't find it in his collected works, but it certainly is true that by scaring people with the thought that they were going to die from a deadly disease, uh, the totalitarians, the would-be totalitarians, uh, released their, their secret Nazis and, and, and sought to seize total control over us in the name for our own good. Of course, it's always for our own good. So that's one threat. I think that threat is receding, but we have to be alert. We have to put protections in place so this never happens again. We should never abandon all of our uh, common understanding of natural immunity and all of the public health measures that we were supposed to be taking to stop infectious diseases in favor of adopting what? A model from totalitarian China. That's insanity. And then we have the threat from China itself. We must prevent uh, Russia from becoming part of a new uh, China-Russia bloc uh, that would give China access to the resources it needs to dominate the world. And, and finally, we have to take back control uh, in the United States of our own system of government here because too many uh, people in high office uh, regard themselves more as citizens of the world or globalists. Uh, too many people in the social media are, are interested more in the kind of control uh, that, that, that social media gives them than in the founding principles of the United States. Um, we cannot allow them to hack our brains because hacking is even more dangerous uh, by that, than brainwashing. Brainwashing was invented by the Chinese Communist Party in the 1930s, but you knew you were being brainwashed when you were arrested, sent to a concentration camp and forced to listen to morning to night lectures uh, sometimes interrupted by torture sessions, you knew you were being brainwashed. So you, your free will was not completely destroyed. But through hacking, by controlling social media, by controlling what people see, what news they're allowed to see, what opinions they're allowed to reflect upon, you can actually uh, hack the human brain. You can destroy people's free will without their knowing that it's being destroyed. We have to stop the threat from social media uh, by ensuring by breaking up these monopolies and allowing the kind of free exchange that you and I here have here today um, been able to engage in. Yes, uh, I would uh, agree. And finally, what would be uh, what's the best website for people to follow you? Uh, and are there any you know other projects and books for that we should know about? Well, uh, you know the books we've talked about. Uh, Bully of Asia is out in a new expanded edition as of last month. Um, so I would encourage anyone who's interested in the past and present threat from China and the future threat from China, uh, get a copy of that. Uh, my book on the pandemic, The Politically Incorrect Guide to Pandemics will be out in a few weeks. Uh, we've made every mistake in the book in dealing with this pandemic, every mistake. Um, and, and finally, our website is pop.org, pop, P-O-P, dot o-r-g pop is short for population research institute 
And we have a lot of material on China and, and other issues on that uh, website as well. The world is not overpopulated. As Elon Musk recently said, our long-term problem is not too many people, but too few people. And if we have too few people, he said, civilization will collapse. Yeah, I would agree. I, I, and I just realized that, you know, when I was teaching, uh, when I was still teaching uh, previously, I often, I would always use the, that one popular video from Population Research Institute, which describes how we are not overpopulated and everyone fits uh, in the state of Texas. And if you just travel, I mean, I, I've, I've lived in a half a dozen countries. You just, you travel throughout the countries, it's mostly empty. People just want right. to live in urban areas. Just if you That's go live right. in the rural area, there's no problem. There's, there's plenty of sp space uh, on the planet. And anyways, everyone be sure to check out Stephen Mosher's uh, book, Bully of Asia, and, and the one that's upcoming. Follow him on Twitter. Uh, go to the website, pop.org. Uh, and again, thank you for being on Geopolitics and Empire. Well, thank you for what you do. I hope you enjoyed this Geopolitics and Empire podcast. The website is geopoliticsandempire.com, and I encourage you to sign up for the free email list that goes out with each podcast and every weekend with a collection of news headlines. The newsletter and website are our last lines of defense. We're being censored and deplatformed. It's nearly impossible to find Geopolitics and Empire on the Google search engine. We've been blacklisted. YouTube frequently takes down our videos with strikes, Facebook restricts our page, Reddit and Twitter take down posts, and after the Associated Press mentioned geopolitics and empire in a 2021 article co-written with NATO, our Patreon account was terminated. Vimeo also terminated our pro account. The best free way to help geopolitics and empire is to leave a review on Apple Podcasts or elsewhere and subscribe to all of our media channels. You can find the video broadcast now on five platforms, Odyssey, Rockfin, Rumble, BitChute, and Brighteon. You can find the audio broadcast on the podcast ecosystem, SoundCloud, Apple, Spotify, and so on. My current favorite social media channels are Twitter and Telegram, but you can also find us on Gab, MeWe, Minds, Float, VK, Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Finally, Geopolitics and Empire is in dire need of funding to continue. You can leave a donation, purchase a consultation with the host, or become a member to receive additional benefits. We also produce a weekly broadcast called Dissident Thinker for members and Rockfin subscribers only. We will continue to fight the good fight come hell or high water. Thank you for listening.